Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, episode 9, Thanksgiving edition. I am back on dry land once again, as Elton John once sang. And if you're listening to this, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. And actually, if you're not listening to this, tomorrow is also Thanksgiving, because I'm not in control of that, alas. I often start these shows by talking about something that has annoyed me or that I think is disastrously wrong with the world. But today, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to stay within the tradition of the holiday and talk a bit about what I'm thankful for, which, well, first off, I'm thankful to be alive now. What an amazing, extraordinary world we live in. We have heating, air conditioning, running water, planes, automobiles. Not trains, let's not get carried away. We have all of human knowledge at our fingertips on a device that also serves as a camera and a scanner, and a telephone, and a GPS device, and a games console, and a telegraph machine, and a TV. I can go to the shop across the road and buy wine from 20 different countries. I can buy fresh vegetables and fruit irrespective of the time of year. I can buy a hundred different types of fish. I can ride roller coasters that cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and that were built for no other purpose than to throw me around safely. I can find out in seconds what's wrong with my water heater if it breaks. And if I can follow along with one of the many videos that helpful people have posted online for free, I can fix it myself. Now, I could have been born in Sparta in 400 BC. I could have been born in the Scottish Highlands in 1364. I could have been born in revolutionary-era France. But I wasn't. I was born in England in the 1980s, and then I moved to America in the 2010s. That was pretty lucky. Now, of course, the more restless among us are always trying to make things better, and they should. But they also shouldn't forget what a miracle the Western world really is. This prosperity, this peace, this liberty, this stability, it's a great luxury. It's a treat. And even better, most of us didn't have to do much at all to create it. My great-grandfather had to fight in the trenches in Flanders. My grandfathers had to fight at Monte Cassino and in the North Atlantic in World War II. But I didn't. I just woke up here. Now look, this is not an appeal for complacency. We have to remember why the modern world is a miracle, and we have to commit to keeping it that way. And as always we have to thank our lucky stars 
for the people who, as George Orwell never actually said, stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would do us harm. But none of that should prevent our gratitude. I know, I know. I complain all the time in my writing and on here about this politician or that policy or this thing that someone said in the newspaper. But at heart, my complaints are all defensive. I complain, and in fact, I write about politics in the first instance, because I think the Western world is so wonderful and because I'm scared that it will be ruined. Some people love politics for its own sake. They like the drama and the horse races and the combat and the approximation to sports and the sense of purpose. I don't. I never wanted to live in interesting times. If I could be guaranteed a sensible status quo, I would happily go and do something else. In fact, one reason that I try to have so many different guests on this show is that I think that to talk about politics all the time without taking a breath to talk about the civil society that politics protects is to forget why we talk about politics in the first place. Politics is a tool, it's not an end. And if we forget to be grateful for the real ends, we'll spend our lives on the margins and we'll die without having ever appreciated why we were here. And of course, that makes me especially thankful for America. I have read and quoted F. Scott Fitzgerald's description of America far too many times for my own good. But I'll do it once more here because I can think of none better. France was a land. England was a people. But America, having about it still that quality of the idea, was harder to utter. It was the graves at Shiloh, and the tired, drawn, nervous faces of its great men, and the country boys dying in the Argonne for a phrase that was empty before their bodies withered. It was a willingness of the heart. Unironically and unapologetically, I believe in all that stuff about the shining city on a hill and the last best hope of mankind. And I believed it before I had any politics. I've always loved America. I've loved America since I was three years old. There was never, in fact, a time when I didn't love America. There was never a time when I didn't want to move here. There was never a time when I didn't want to become an American and become part of it. And now I am here. And now I am an American and now I am part of it. How could I not be grateful for that? And now, a guest. I'm here with Ricky Cobb, who is the brain behind Super 70s Sports, which, in my humble opinion, is maybe the best account on Twitter. I, I love this account. I've loved this account forever. And clearly, a lot of other people love this account too. Not only 
do my friends often text me tweets from Super 70s Sports, but it has, what, 670,000 followers now, of whom Ricky has said, it is believed that most are very intelligent and physically attractive. I can confirm that in this case. So, Ricky, I'm not quite sure how to describe your Twitter account. It does feature sports, but it's also a well of nostalgia for and jokes about the, the 1970s and beyond. It's poignant. It's sometimes profane. Well, it's often profane. It's really a unique corner of the internet that in some ways reminds me of the internet when it was new, except that you've successfully made the jump to Twitter, which most of the early internet sites did not. So um, I guess my opening question is, why does it exist? How did it start? What gave you the idea? Well, first of all, thank you, Charles, for having me on. Um, It started as a hobby. I'm a college professor by day, at least for a little while longer. And about eight or nine years ago, I was on Christmas break and I think looking to entertain myself, uh, maybe a little bit of cabin fever. And I had read a book called Big Hair and Plastic Grass by Dan Epstein. And it was a book about baseball in the 1970s. And Dan's a wonderful writer, and he integrates pop culture into his writings. He's he's a rock and roll writer by trade. And I loved the book. I loved the attitude of it. And Dan had created a Facebook page to promote his book. And I started following it on Facebook. And every day, Dan was doing fun stuff, posting baseball cards of Greg Lazinski and Willie Stargell and Burt Campaneris and wishing different players happy birthdays and just uh, reflecting on what was a really happy time in my life growing up. And I found myself really looking forward to it every day. And I, I was checking it and I realized it had become a part of the rhythm of my day. And I thought, well, Dan's onto something here. And I, I wonder if I could take what Dan is doing and apply it more generally to to all sports. And I'm a frustrated amateur comedian by, by trade, I think. I was that professor. I guess I still am that professor. And so as I created the account, I really didn't think that it would be anything more than a hobby. Maybe some of my friends would enjoy it. Maybe a few other people might find it. But I never thought in a million years that I would be here pushing 700,000 followers. Where do you find all of the material? I mean, there is an almost endless supply of images and throwbacks on this account, often with pretty funny descriptions. (laughs) The tweet this morning made me laugh. You have a, a set of Star Wars glasses, I think from the 1980s, early 1980s. Yes, that's right. and you, they were given out by Burger King, I suppose. And, and, it, and the, the caption says, Burger King brought it strong with these Star Wars glasses. This set's still in great condition because the child who got them died of lead poisoning three days later. I mean, just that one, for example, where did you find that? It's all out there. People sometimes think, uh, I, I believe they're under the impression that I have some portal to 
yeah. really cool stuff on the internet that uh, the rest of us don't. But the truth is I roll up my sleeves and I dive into the internet and I, I go to the places that others fear to tread and it, it's fishing really. I, it's, it's putting all kinds of gibberish into Google and seeing what turns up. I guess I'm a little bit of a mad scientist in that way. I, I've, <laughs> my stock line is I tell people that I have the most disturbing non-pornographic browser history in America. <laughs> and that's probably close to true. But it, it's really just a matter of being determined to find stuff. Obviously, I've refined my search uh, abilities through the years just from logging so many hours of doing it. Is this thing has gotten bigger and more successful and my reach has gotten wider. I do have a lot of people who will send me material. And so if anyone is listening to this and you're a super seventies fan, by all means, if you see something cool, send it to me because worst case scenario, I've, I've already used it and I can't do anything with it, but best case scenario, uh, you'll put one on a T for me. And, uh, there's a lot of hours that go into it. The, the caption writing is, is fun. The finding things that are worthy of being captioned gets a little bit harder as as I go forward. But as you said, the the supply is is pretty vast, and I actually used to worry that I was going to run out of material. But I guess as I'm nearing doing this for something like eight years now, that uh, I'm pretty confident there's always going to be material. Was there a particular point at which it exploded? Uh, or has it been a steady climb over the last seven years? I think it's been more of a steady climb. There have been a few milestones along the way. I remember being in the drive through of a Taco Bell when I hit 3,000 followers. And I thought that that was crazy that I had hit 3,000 followers. That seemed like such a large audience. That's really the expectations that I had for this when I began. When I say that I had no expectations that I would turn this into any kind of a career or that I would gain any sort of notoriety or acclaim, I, I really mean it. It never crossed my mind. By the end of 2015, 2015 was the year that I really began in earnest. January the 1st, 2015. And I haven't missed a day tweeting since then. So I'm, I'm working on a Cal Ripken Jr. like streak here. And when I say that I haven't missed a day, we're talking about very, very few days that I've tweeted less than 15 times. I would say that there probably have been no more than a dozen days in those eight years that I've tweeted less than 15 times. There have been many days that I've tweeted probably 50 or more. I try not to do that now because I, I understand I have to pace myself. I would rather do 30 today and 20 tomorrow than run myself ragged. But at the end of 2015, Sports Illustrated named me to some garbage social media list that they had online, the Twitter 100, I think it was. And I found myself on this list of 100 people that included Kobe Bryant and a lot of big names. And I thought, wow, I'm even in the absolute cheapest way possible. I'm rubbing elbows with some pretty substantial people. And so that led me to think that maybe I was onto something. I think at that point I had about 21,000 followers. And so in, in 2017, the tweet, people always ask me, what was your biggest tweet? What was your favorite tweet? 
And in 2017, I tweeted a picture of Howard Cosell, O.J. Simpson, and Bruce Jenner. And uh, the caption on that, I believe, was, ladies and gentlemen, I've looked into the future, and you're not going to believe this shit. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that one. (laughs) That one hit over 50,000 retweets and uh, in excess of 100,000 likes, and it really did advance things. At that point in time, I, I was still really anonymous behind the account, uh, the account name, but at least at that point, the account name was starting to get out there. And in uh, early 2019, they did a really nice full-page feature on me in the Chicago Tribune. Later that summer, they they did another nice piece on me in the New York Post. And so the, the media uh, hits started to get bigger and uh, it really started to gain some momentum, I would say, in 2019. And and since then, it's just continued to snowball. So you say you didn't expect it to get this big. You had 3,000 followers and so on. Why do you think it did get this big? Do you have any insights into that? Or are you still baffled at 570,000 followers? I'm, I'm definitely somewhat still baffled. I, I think that... I didn't realize the powerful elements that I was playing with. I thought that a lot of these things that I was talking about were things that appealed to me, and they might appeal to some other people, but I thought it was going to be a very niche kind of thing that I was doing for a certain kind of person who had a certain kind of sensibility. And I just started shooting from the hip. And I I think that that's part of it is the the voice i think it's it's just me i'm not trying to be popular i didn't set out to gain a lot of followers i just started doing me and for whatever reason i'm grateful that my voice resonated my perspective resonated the 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 way that i see comedy and the and, and the way that i caption things resonated but i think probably the number one thing is i just underestimated the communal experience that we had in some ways growing up in the 70s and 80s when today's great there's so many streaming platforms and and all kinds of shows but it's so fractured i i I, charles i don't know about you but i'll have friends come to me and say if you watch this show the show is so great you need to watch it and not only have i not heard of it i have no idea what platform it's on and back in the 70s and in the 80s, if, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, what, what did you think of Happy Days last night? Most of us had an opinion on that because we, we only had really maybe three choices, uh, a couple of other channels. And so we were watching the same stuff. We were consuming a lot of the same things. And so what I came to realize is this account developed was there were a lot of people who related to what I was saying and who in a certain sense I was speaking for. I, I had a friend who jokingly told me that I was the voice of a generation, but in a sense, I do think that I'm I'm speaking things that a lot of people were thinking that they that they have thought, and there was really nobody who was articulating it, or at least who was demented enough to revel in it every day of their life like I was. So I think I I tapped into something that was a lot more powerful than I could have imagined. See, I think that's a great point because you you mentioned 
I wouldn't call it a monoculture, but the shared culture of the 70s and 80s. I, I grew up in the late 80s and early 1990s, but some of it was still there. I mean, those those cups, for example, the glasses from Star Wars, the sort of thing I would remember. And I think you're exactly right in that the sort of material that you put up on Super 70s Sports that is nostalgic or cultural, that has to do with movies and television, it shares a characteristic with the sports content, and that is that you could only all watch it at the same time. I mean, because today, the one thing that you can't DVR and watch later and get the same result is sports. That's why the only shared cultural experience we all have now is the Super Bowl. I know there, there are some people who try not to learn the score in the Super Bowl, and then they, they go, you know, some people have gone weeks without finding it out. It's sort of a challenge. But most people like to watch it at the same time, and I guess that was the same thing culturally in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. If you missed something that was on TV, you missed it. You couldn't tape it. You couldn't find it on DVR. You couldn't go down to the library. It wasn't there. So I'd never really put the two sides of what you're doing together before, but I suppose they, they have that in common. Um, I have to ask, you, you said every day for seven years from January 1st, when you decided to do this in earnest, you've done between 15 and 50 with maybe 12 days off. How much of your time does this take up? I mean, it sounds like a job. Oh, it's it's a job. It's a full-time job. A full-time job to the extent that it takes a toll on my relationships to some degree because my, my kids will tell you, I think they would tell you I'm a good dad, but I think they would also tell you dad's on his phone a lot. And I can certainly tell you that my my girlfriend would, would certainly attest to that and because I wake up every day, Charles, without a plan. I, I've sort of created this monster and now I have to feed it. So I, it hit a certain point where I realized that I'd put so much time into this that there was no turning back. And I'm, I'm really sort of pedal to the metal at this point in time because I, I want to take it as far as it can go and, and, and see what opportunities are out there with Super 70s. Because I've invested so much time in it, I think I feel a, a certain sense of internal pressure that it has to succeed. Do you dream about it? I do. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. it's a fever. I, I I was telling someone recently that I'm probably just going to wake up. I'm probably in a COVID coma somewhere, Charles, <laughs> and this is all just my brain being overactive because it's surreal. A lot of the time, it's surreal. The people that I've met, the friendships that I've forged, the acquaintances that I've made with people that I admired when I was a kid. Oh, so tell me about that. Who who, who in particular? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I had Rod Carew on a podcast a few episodes ago, but I my my old podcast, I, I was really lucky. I, I had a lot of folks on that podcast that that meant a lot to me when I was a kid. Athletes like Dale Murphy and Dave Parker, Dan Issel, Alan Trammell, a lot of those kinds of folks. And then I also had people from other sports and, and entertainment. Rob Lowe came on the podcast, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Rob um, Lowe from the West Wing. and Yeah, yeah, Rob Lowe from the West Wing. Barry Williams from the Brady Bunch. Getting to, getting to interview Greg Brady for an hour was... Uh, that was probably peak living if you ask 13-year-old me. And Did you it, find your account? Is that how it worked? 
Yeah, he he follows me now. Yeah, he 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 was following my account, and I just reached out to him and sent him a message. It's easier to get people a, a, as a guest when they already follow you and and I think have respect for what you do. So uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Rob Lowe, Barry Williams, a lot of those guys, I just reached out to them because we were connected through uh, through Twitter, following each other and. You know they were they were quite enthusiastic about it. I don't think I've ever had anybody turn me down that I've requested to, to interview. So, you know, it's uh, even though I'm this unknown person who has gained some modest level of notoriety with the Twitter account, I think there's a level of respect. If somebody admires your work, enjoys what uh, what you do, uh, it, it at least gives you a foothold to uh, have a conversation with them. Absolutely. And I looked on your website and it said that you'd done some collaborative work with the 49ers and the Rays and the Washington Wizards. What was that about? Yeah, um, all of those organizations reached out to me um, to help them promote or help them work on on some type of project that they had going on. I think the Wizards were doing a uh, 40th anniversary of their 1978 NBA champion team. And so um, I, I worked with them on some of the promotional materials that they were that they were using for that. San Francisco, the 49ers, they wanted to work with me on uh, putting some tweets on their timeline that I created for them based on different events that had happened in 49ers history. And the Rays actually invited me down to, well, I've been out to San Francisco a few times as well to uh, to go to 49ers games, but the Rays were theming a retro throwback doubleheader, and they wanted to make it a little more immersive and authentically 70s. And I guess the uh, the owner uh, of the Rays was a was a fan of the account, so he put his uh, his team on that with me, and so I worked with them on some of the things that they did during the ball game in, in terms of kind of creating that 70s environment and I, I went down there and had a great time so and I'm still still friends with the, the radio guys Dave Wills and Andy Freed down there uh, in St. Pete so it's it's just been one oddity after another and I pinch myself frequently so I don't want to stress you out with this question given that you said that this is such a a big ongoing piece of work and you're beginning to look at it in the sense of well i have to make it worth it but it's not a website that you control it's not a museum building that you own it, it's twitter now i don't think for one second twitter's going anywhere i think that freak out that we just had is is sort of wrong but do you ever back your material up to think about moving it somewhere else in case twitter disappeared or your account got deleted or something catastrophic happened yeah, well, I'm I'm a fairly high anxiety person anyway, so I I always think about what could go wrong. I I did. I put all my eggs in the Twitter basket and I think that that was largely because I didn't think that I was ever going to have very many eggs or or that it was going to matter. If I if I had it to do over, I probably would have been cross-posting since the beginning on on other platforms as well and Yeah, we had a week of uh we at least had a night or two of the mass hysteria with everybody uh, pr- pronouncing Twitter's death as imminent. And while I agree with you, I'm I'm not too terribly concerned about that. It was still a, sort of a 
darkly funny night. I had people sending me messages thanking me for everything I'd done as though I had, you know, performed surgery on their their father or something. And <laughs> these solemn messages just saying, if I'll see you on the other side, you know, what those kinds of things where we were we were all passengers on the Titanic and we were saying our final goodbyes and people giving me their phone numbers so that I could contact them in the post-apocalyptic world that we were all headed for. Yeah, I try to download the archive of my tweets. That's really about all I can do. I I had someone telling me uh, earlier today, in fact, my agent, in fact, was telling me, you know, you, you should really consider getting on Instagram, getting on TikTok, Facebook, whatever, just just to be on the safe side, you know, and I'm and I'm sure that's great advice, but I don't have a staff here. So everything takes time and and effort and uh, most days I'm doing well to keep my nose above the water just to get the tweets out. All right. Well, you have your Twitter account and you do have a store. Where can people find you? Just those two? Yeah, well, people can find the store at uh, super70sportsstore.com. We have a pretty pretty good inventory of retro themed shirts and shirts that are inspired by the era and inspired by the pop culture of that time that I'm pretty proud of. There's also a super70sports.com that we are just trying to get off the ground and trying to make a place that's going to have a little bit of a community feel where people can go and get on the forum, create their own, create their own threads and interact with interact with each other. We're we're putting some games in there. We're creating something that we call the Super 70 Sports Arcade, which uh, are simple little app type games that are 8-bit graphics that feel a lot like uh the the old school games of the uh of the of the early 80s and in and late 70s. So that's been a lot of fun, but that's really just in its embryonic stages, but that's one project. Uh I I do have uh I do have some interesting things going on behind the scenes. We've got some things that I think are going to break Super 70s out of the Twitter sphere in early 2023 that I'm not quite at liberty to talk about right now, but we're in development as as they say. Well, you're doing some teasers on my podcast. I love it. Yes, you you heard it here first. I heard it here first. All right, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. As I say, this reminds me what you're doing of the early internet. I just so happened to be an early adopter because my parents were early adopters because my dad needed the internet for his business. And so we had this uh, old 28.8 modem dial-up in... uh, my dad's office and I used to go on. I'm, I'm actually obsessed with roller coasters. So the early roller coaster community was, uh, was a big draw, but this sort of semi obsessive kind of nostalgic, amusing off the cuff, unbuttoned way of, of doing things just has been largely lost from an internet. That's been, uh, I suppose, corporatized and centralized and, uh, sanitized. So, uh, I think it's just great what you've done. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, Charles, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've I've been blessed in that I've been able to speak in my own authentic voice with what's really my perspective. The the, the Twitter feed is for who it's for. 
to quote Dave Chappelle years ago when he was talking about the success of Chappelle's show, I, I used to think that maybe the breakthrough for, for me would be ESPN or Fox or somebody coming in and, and wanting to hire me. But in retrospect, I think I've probably been blessed to be able to do it my way because, as you know, once you, once you start working for an outlet like that, you're, you're going to be edited fairly heavily. So uh, I'm just going to continue to do me and we'll see where it goes. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate it. And now another installation of Q&A. Question one. I believe I heard you say that you hold dual citizenship in the USA and the UK. I would be interested in hearing your reflections on this topic. Even if I misunderstood and you are not a dual citizen, I still would enjoy hearing you expound upon it. So, you didn't misunderstand. I am, in fact, a dual citizen. What do I think of it? Well, I essentially agree with all of the criticisms of dual citizenship. As a legal matter... I don't think it really makes much sense to be a citizen of two places. When I became a citizen of the United States, I swore, and I quote, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Now, that is pretty final. So final, in fact, that some countries respond to their citizens taking that oath by automatically stripping them of their former citizenship. India, for example, does not allow Indian citizens to be citizens of other countries as well. So if an Indian becomes an American, he immediately loses his Indian citizenship. It's automatic. Now, Britain does not do that. Used to do that. The British Naturalization Act of 1870 held that British subjects were deemed to have renounced their British citizenship if they voluntarily naturalized in a foreign country. But since 1948, Britain has allowed its citizens to be citizens of other countries as well. From what I understand, that change was made for a couple of reasons. First, because the old system led to women and their children becoming stateless. If a British woman married a foreign man prior to 1948... British law deemed that woman to have become of 
that man's country, even if she hadn't, and it took away her passport. Sometimes, though, the woman and her children had not become citizens of the new husband's country, and so they ended up without any country, which was a total mess. The same thing often happened, obviously, with divorce. Second, the Second World War revealed a bunch of problems with that approach. By 1945, a lot of people around the world were effectively stranded without a country. The British didn't want that to happen to British citizens, and the government had also been impressed by the loyalty that British citizens who had been living abroad during the war had shown, so they changed the rule. Now, to get around any conflicts, they passed what's called the Master Nationality Rule, and that effectively holds that if a person is a citizen of two countries, one of which is Britain, the British government has no right to intervene on behalf of that person in the second country of which a person is a citizen, only in the third country to which the citizen does not belong. That's why, for example, when I enter Britain, I must do so on my British passport, but when I enter America, I must do so on my American passport, and then I can choose which passport to use in a third country, say, France. Now, the reason I mention all this is that while I basically agree with the criticisms of dual citizenship, I don't see many practical problems with someone being a citizen of the UK and the US. And conversely, I can see a bunch of potential problems for myself if I were to renounce my British citizenship. I am now an American in every particular. I don't own any property in the UK. I don't do any work in the UK. I don't pay any taxes in the UK. I don't vote in the UK. Everything I do now, live, work, own property, pay taxes, vote, I do in America. When I travel other than to the UK where I don't have a choice, I do so on my American passport. If it came to it in a war or an emergency or what you will, I would, as promised, accept direction from the American government, but not from the British. And the thing is, the potential problems that this arrangement might cause are next to zero because Britain and America are great friends and they're unlikely to go to war with each other. So why not give up my British citizenship? Simple answer is because of my English family. I have at the back of my mind, but it's there nevertheless, a fear that my English family will die or suffer a tragedy or an emergency or what you will, and I'll need to go to England for a while to help or sort it out. And I'll end up stuck applying for extended visas or embroiled in some bureaucratic hell that would have been avoided if I just kept my passport in the first place. If the US government said tomorrow that dual citizenship was a bad idea and that I had to give up my British passport, I would of course do so without hesitation. It's funny that this question came up now when the World Cup's on, because aside from all of the legal and historical stuff, being from two places can be a bit emotionally complicated, especially when it comes to, say, sports. This week, people have been asking me 
will you support the USA or England in the World Cup? And the answer's both. And then they say, well, what if they play each other? And the answer is also both. But of course, while that's absolutely true, I will support both. It's really not as easy as all that. Because on the English side, I have 26 years of memories of watching England with my dad. And on the American side, everyone I know here thinks soccer is stupid. So to understand that imbalance, consider how it would be if the United States were to play England at American football. If that happened, I would obviously root for America. But that would be partly because I didn't grow up watching the England football team, because there isn't one, and because if there were a football game of that sort, nobody in England would care at all, while my friends and my wife and my kids would be into it. It's really hard to change your sports teams. And sometimes, although for me this is extraordinarily rare, given how deliberately and deeply I have tried to assimilate, it can be hard to change the country that you grew up with too. Question two. I'm a big Beatles fan, but I haven't done much reading. I'm wondering what your favorite books are on the Beatles. Well, first thing to say here is that a lot of the information, probably most of the information that I have memorized about the Beatles came from all sorts of random places, not from one or two books. Came from TV shows and magazines and encyclopedias and my dad and my own reading and listening and conversations. It's the product of all manner of inquiry. But there are some good books if you want to read more. You should definitely buy the enormous Beatles anthology book, which is the story of the Beatles in the four members' own words. You should read Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain and America. You should read the official biography of the band written by Hunter Davis. And above all, and I only just read this myself last week at the suggestion of Jeff Blehar, who was correctly astonished that I hadn't already read it, you should pick up Revolution in the Head by Ian MacDonald, which is absolutely incredible and which features a long description, background analysis of every single Beatles song in its second half. Which brings me to the end of the show. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Ricky Cobb of Super 70s Sports. Thank you to you for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>